The fields of psychological crisis and disaster mental health intervention were developed to relieve human suffering in the wake of adversity. They have gained popularity worldwide as a concept, but implementation remains a challenge, often due to fundamental misconceptions about what these fields are and how to apply them. Hello, I'm Andy Everly, host for the ICISF Quick Tips series. In this episode, we will focus on the 10 most common misconceptions surrounding psychological crisis intervention and disaster mental health. Dr. George Everly Jr. joins me to discuss this topic. He is co-founder of ICISF and professor of international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is also author of the classic text, A Clinical Guide to the Treatment of the Human Stress Response. It is now in its fourth edition and has been in print for over 40 years. He was formerly the chief psychologist at the Johns Hopkins Homewood Hospital Center, where he oversaw training and practice in behavioral medicine and clinical psychology. Dr. Everly, providing interventions during crises and disasters seem to be challenging enough, but if fueled by fundamental misconceptions, I imagine the challenge to provide effective intervention would be even greater. Would you agree? Exactly correct, Andy. Effective intervention is dependent upon understanding what these interventions are and what they are not. So what are the most common misconceptions that interventionists must avoid? So here's a list of 10, not in any particular order, but a list of 10 misconceptions. The first misconception, crisis intervention is a substitute for counseling. It is not. Rather, crisis intervention and counseling lie on a continuum of care. Second, crisis intervention can only be effectively performed by licensed mental health clinicians. This is incorrect. Crisis intervention and some rudimentary aspects of counseling have been shown to be effectively implemented by people without mental health licenses or degrees. We sometimes refer to those people as peer counselors. Third misconception, asking people to describe a crisis, a disaster, or a traumatic experience is re-traumatizing and it should be avoided. Most of human history would argue against that. After significant events in people's lives, we want to tell the story. We want to write the story. Some of the most poignant contributions to literature are in the wake of great adversity. Now, if we coerce someone to tell their story when they're not ready, that could be harmful. So the key is timing. People generally want to tell their stories, but it's got to be at their time, not ours. The fourth misconception, critical incident stress debriefing has been shown to be harmful. That's actually false. It has 
risen to the notion of urban legend, unfortunately, but we see no evidence from randomized controlled trials that critical incident stress debriefing is harmful. Now, any intervention in another human being's life has risk, of course, but with proper training and care, we reduce those risks. Associated with this misconception is the notion that critical incident stress management has been shown to be harmful. That too is false. Our fifth misconception, assuming training in counseling or psychotherapy prepares one to do crisis intervention. Not necessarily. One can literally go through an eight year training program and become a doctor of clinical psychology and never once have to work in an emergency room, never once have to take a class in suicide intervention, never once have to take a class in crisis intervention. Next misconception. The terms critical incident stress management and critical incident stress debriefing can be used interchangeably. No, they are two very, very different things. Critical incident stress debriefing is a small group interactive crisis intervention, whereas critical incident stress management is a strategic planning system that does indeed consist of many interventions, one of which is critical incident stress debriefing. Our seventh misconception, assuming the concept of timing when planning an intervention refers to the literal passage of time. A little confusing, isn't it? Actually, it's not. Timing is a psychological variable, not a temporal one. That's why it's really hard to say that certain interventions should be done within so many hours or so many days or so many months. It really depends. The eighth misconception, assuming that incidents cause psychological reactions. No. What we do know, and we've known since the 1960s, is that incidents set the stage for reactions, but they don't always cause reactions such as anxiety or depression. It is our belief about the incident that causes the reaction. Our ninth, even though you may have gone through a similar incident, the misconception is that you actually understand what that incident would be like for someone else. You don't. So ask. It's a misconception to assume that what may have helped you get through an incident will help someone else. We're all different. Our 10th and final misconception, that counseling is an effective emergent substitute for crisis intervention. Perhaps the best research that came out of 9-11 showed that crisis intervention was actually superior to multi-session counseling in the acute post-disaster phase. And in fact, there was evidence that the more counseling people got in that phase, uh, the slower their progress. Crisis intervention was clearly 
the intervention of choice. Effective practice is usually based on assumptions and how we conceptualize what we do. By avoiding the 10 misconceptions, we will improve overall effectiveness, allowing us to better assist those in crisis. I'm Andy Everly. Until next time.